0: Pastor John Nielsen said this. He said, I think that any Christian who hasn't struggled with doubts, at least on some level, is probably guilty of not thinking deeply enough about his or her faith or just not telling the truth. What do you think about that? By way of review, just... To catch us up where we're at this morning. In the first part of Matthew chapter 10, Jesus gives his 12 disciples specific instructions for carrying out this mission that he gave them for going into the surrounding villages and doing the same kinds of things that they had been watching him do. Proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God, healing people, driving out demons. And then in the second part of Matthew chapter 10, Jesus speaks to all of his followers, you and me included, about the rejection that his followers can expect to face because of him, how he wants us to respond to that rejection, and that we can be assured of his love in the midst of it. Today in Matthew chapter 11, that's where we'll be If you have a Bible, you can start making your way over to Matthew chapter 11. Today, in Matthew chapter 11, we begin with a question that John the Baptist asked Jesus, which reveals a common struggle that we can all wrestle with. Doubt. Doubt. Now, there are different kinds of doubt. For example, there is the kind of doubt a person can struggle with when weighing, weighing to believe and embrace Jesus as savior questions about the existence of God, for example, and the historical accuracy of the Bible and about Jesus really being who he said he was and that sort of thing. There's a kind of doubt, which is an expression of the absence of faith. We see this kind of thing in some of the stories from the life of Jesus, people who are doubters, critics, opposers of Jesus. They have an anti faith. In Jesus. There's another kind of doubt that a person can wrestle with who has already embraced Jesus as Savior. A Christian, a follower of Jesus, can struggle with doubt sometimes. And it's not the same as unbelief. It's a doubt of a different character. It's a doubt that can actually be a wrestling with God himself. And it's this kind of doubt that we will be talking about today. So in Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, it says, After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? John the Baptist is now in prison. And Matthew tells us a little later in Matthew chapter 14, verse 3, why or how John got himself in prison, how he landed there, why he's in prison. John the Baptist had been confronting Herod Antipas, Tetrarch of Galilee, the most powerful man in the region, about his sin of taking his brother's wife and marrying her. The story is told of how Herod Antipas was captivated by the beauty of his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. He fell in love with her, and then the two of them conspired together to leave her husband Philip and become his wife instead. Everyone knew the soap opera story about how Herodias became Herod Antipas' wife. But no one was foolish enough to say anything about it within earshot of Herod or his wife Herodias, no one was foolish enough to say anything except John the Baptist. John the Baptist, he boldly confronted them about their sin. Herod would have had John killed, but he feared the repercussions it might cause with the many people who believed John to be a prophet from the Lord. So he had John put in prison to silence his public criticism of Herod and his wife. John the Baptist has been sidelined. He's sitting in prison. He only hears from afar and through others what's happening with Jesus. John the Baptist sends some of his closest followers to Jesus to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? This is an odd question to be coming from John the Baptist. At an earlier time, John the Baptist was convinced that Jesus is indeed the one who is to come, the Messiah. For example, when Jesus came to John the Baptist to be baptized by him, John tried to deter Jesus, you might remember, saying to him, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John recognized who Jesus was, felt the need to be baptized by Jesus rather than him baptizing Jesus. John the Baptist pointed to Jesus for his own followers in those early days. And he said to them, Look, that's the Lamb of God right there who takes away the sin of the world. That's the one I've been telling you about. John recognized Jesus to be the Savior who would die as a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Talking about when he baptized Jesus, John said this in John 1.32, he says, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. John the Baptist, he was there when the voice of God spoke from heaven and he said about Jesus, this is my son in whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. John the Baptist had a clear and certain conviction about who Jesus was. He believed Jesus was the one, the Messiah, the Savior, the fulfillment of the ancient prophecies, the one who had been the subject of John the Baptist preaching, the coming one that he's been preparing people for. But now, John is expressing doubt about Jesus being the one, the Christ. Why? Why? There are a number of reasons perhaps, but I believe the biggest reason is because Jesus is not the Messiah that John the Baptist had expected. John the Baptist was was expecting the Messiah to bring judgment upon the ungodly and overthrow the pagan rule over Israel. Remember, John was the prophet who had been sent to prepare the way for the Messiah and his message was one of repentance and making oneself ready for the Messiah by renouncing a sinful life. He baptized people as a public act of repentance and turning away from one's sinful life and back to God. You might remember the content of, Jesus, of John's preaching in Matthew 3.11. John said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who's more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the shaft with unquenchable fire. John the Baptist was looking for a Messiah who would bring judgment. He was expecting to see the fire. He was expecting the Messiah to clear his threshing floor and burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. That wasn't happening. The wicked are continuing in their wickedness. John the Baptist knew the prophecies about the Messiah that said he would free the captives and proclaim freedom to the prisoners. Why hasn't that happened yet? John is sitting in prison, having been put there by a very wicked person. If Jesus is the Messiah, then why hasn't John been released from prison? John asked Jesus, should we expect someone else? For the follower of Jesus, doubt can come into our mind when when our expectations of God are not met and when our circumstances become extremely difficult. These are both happening to John the Baptist right now. And for us, What expectations of God do you have which are not being met? Are you feeling hugely disappointed about something? Have you been waiting for something to happen which never seems to happen? Have you been pleading with God to fix something that continues to remain broken? Are you facing some very difficult circumstances and you are struggling with why God has allowed it to continue to happen? Doubt creeps into our mind as we wrestle with these kinds of things. Doubt is not the same as unbelief, though. This kind of doubt can actually be evidence of a living faith that is fighting to maintain its grip on the Lord. Frederick Buechner said about this kind of doubt, Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. Look at how Jesus responds to John the Baptist's question in verse 4. Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. The way Jesus answers John's question is interesting. He doesn't give him a lengthy theological answer drawn from Scripture. He doesn't give him a simple direct answer of, yes, I am the one. Instead, Jesus tells John's guys to go back and tell John what they see happening. And he lists some of those things that are happening. This list includes portions of the prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah. It's interesting to note, though, that Jesus is pointing out, as he is pointing out many of the blessings that would accompany the Messiah's arrival, he also leaves out deliberately the predictions of coming judgment and doom. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 is a great example of, of this because that's a, a large portion of this quotation here and he does not include the latter part of that. Now we shouldn't assume that to mean that judgment and doom will never come. Jesus, he gives warnings about coming judgment in other places. But now is the time of invitation and blessing. Jesus gives John enough of an answer to affirm to him that he is indeed the one who is to come. But Jesus does not allow John's expectations to define the scope of the Messiah's mission and ministry. The Lord will not allow the expectations of any person, then or now, including you and me, to define the scope of His mission and ministry, both in the world and in our life, personally. He determines that. He's Messiah. Rather than us trying to push Him into the molds that we have for who we think He ought to be, we need to learn from Him who He is and embrace Him as Lord as He really is. In verse 6, In a form similar to the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, Jesus expresses this idea. He says, blessed or happy or fortunate are those who are not stumbled, offended, put off by Jesus. In other words, we need to let go of our expectations of who we want Jesus to be and take hold of who he really is. Christian, in this life of faith that we are living as a follower of Jesus, we are not going to be given answers to all of our questions in this life. A maturing faith. Trust in the sovereignty of God. Believing He is ultimately in control of all things. Doubts exercise our faith, making it stronger. Doubts, they can stretch our faith nearly to the breaking point. And then we're forced to let go of our demands for answers and control. And our faith and trust in the Lord then grows, becoming stronger. We childishly say, I want to know why I want you to change this now. And we grow into saying, I'm trusting that you know why, and that is enough for me. I will trust you even in the storms and the suffering. Ray Ortland put it this way. He said, my capacity for belief is not measured by my certainty, but by my need. Faith is not my bringing the great questions of existence under my control. Faith is turning to the Lord in his all sufficiency for my desperate need to hear and receive what he has to say to me. Doubt builds that maturing, (laughs) submitting faith into our life where we submit and trust in the Lord. We let go of our demand for answers and we let go of our demand to have control. We trust Him for those things. In Verse 7, Jesus, He now addresses the crowd of people who have been listening on in on the conversation He has been having with John's followers. Many of these people, they have... Listen to John the Baptist preaching, and they were baptized by John. They're familiar with John and his ministry. Some of these people in the crowd, they have likely been wondering the same kinds of things that John has. If Jesus really is the Messiah, then why is John in prison? If Jesus is really the Messiah, then why don't we see judgment coming against the ungodly and overthrow these wicked Romans? Jesus addresses these questions in an interesting way. Rather than giving a direct answer, saying, I'm the Messiah. He affirms the ministry of John the Baptist here. Jesus wants to remove any doubt in their minds about the legitimacy of John's call and ministry. He may be in prison now, but that says nothing about whether he is a real prophet of God or not. Verse 7, as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are, king, are in kings' palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet. Jesus asked the people what they think they went out into the desert to see when they were listening to John the Baptist preach and be, being baptized baptized by him. A reed swayed by the wind, in other words, a weak man with no backbone, a man who with no strong convictions, a pushover type person, a people pleaser. No! John was a very strong person. He was swayed by no one. he didn't concern himself with what others thought about him. He didn't worry about who he might offend. He had one thing that concerned him, and it was to fulfill the call of God upon his life no matter what. A man dressed in fine clothes. In other words, a person who seeks luxury, a life of ease, a man who had divided motives and interests, a man who sought popularity and fame, a man who wanted to take the easy way out, a man of convenience... No. John lived a life of simplicity. He lived in the wilderness eating a basic diet of locusts and honey. He wore unrefined, dirt-cheap clothing made of camel's hair. He lived a life absent of distractions or luxuries. He had no other motive than to fulfill the call of God in his life. Jesus asks, a prophet? And he answers emphatically, yes, I tell you a prophet and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus affirms in the strongest language possible that John the Baptist is indeed the messenger who was sent ahead of the Messiah to prepare, to prepare the way for him as predicted in the ancient prophecies. Jesus says John held the highest place of honor among men. There was no one greater. And then Jesus says something interesting and unexpected. He says, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus is drawing a distinction between how much more important and significant the coming of the Messiah and his kingdom is over even having the greatest of the prophets among us. Do you remember what John the Baptist said about Jesus in comparison to himself? He said he wasn't worthy to carry his sandals. We have a similar kind of comparison going on here. Jesus is saying, in effect, John was the greatest prophet of God that ever lived on this planet. He marked the pinnacle of the old covenant era. He was the last and the greatest under the old covenant. But a new thing has come, something so much better, so much more important, so much more significant, so much more life-changing and world-shaking that the most insignificant in this new kingdom is greater than the greatest of the old. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he's the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. The basic idea in what Jesus says here is the coming of the kingdom of heaven has always been opposed. There were people who fought against the law and the prophets. John the Baptist was opposed, having been put in prison, and he'll be executed shortly. Opposition against Jesus is continuing to grow and will eventually lead to him being arrested and then condemned to die, crucified. And then he tells these parables that illustrates that there's no pleasing, this generation. To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others, We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. A pipe or a flute was often played at a wedding celebration. It was a musical instrument that was used at happy gatherings. A dirge was often sang at a funeral. It is a slow, sad, mournful song or music. Jesus says, This generation, which refers especially to the religious leaders and those who share their skepticism and opposition to the coming of the kingdom, they're like children playing together. The children play happy music with a flute, hoping others will join in and dance, but they refuse. We played a pipe for you, but you didn't dance. And so the children, they sing a sad, mournful song, hoping others will join in mourning. But they refuse to do that as well. We sing a dirge and you didn't cry. There's no way to please them, no matter what you do. In the same way, John the Baptist lived a very devout and austere life out in the desert, as bare bones as one could imagine living, and they accused him of having a demon. Jesus, he came eating and drinking and socializing with people, and they accused him of being a glutton and a drunk. There's no way of pleasing them. They are not going to join no matter what you do. They refuse to participate. They refuse to acknowledge or recognize the hand of God in John's ministry or in Jesus' ministry. To use a modern slang phrase which conveys a similar idea, haters going to hate. There's people... who say they're interested in the things of God, but their hearts are already set against the Lord. And no matter what is said to them, no matter how it's presented to them, no matter how much evidence is offered, no matter how many objections are answered, they will continue to find excuse. There's always some sticking point that they say is keeping them from embracing Jesus as Christ. We wanna do all that we can to reach people with the good news of Jesus. But there will be times with some people when you're going to have to commit them to the Lord and pray that he will bring someone else into their life at the right time to connect with them. We don't ever wanna write anyone off, but we also need to recognize that we can't please everyone or connect with everyone. A closing thought drawn from what we've read here today. We don't want a Messiah that has been made in our own image. That kind of Messiah, it may may look good on the surface to us, but we have a warped perspective because we don't see clearly enough to know what's really needed to rescue and redeem us. We're blind to much of the damage in our life. We tend to protect and hide our weak spots and emphasize and show our strengths. And that approach can serve us well in business and on the sports field. But Jesus is seeking to really heal the broken places and make us whole and build us into the beautiful people that share the character of Jesus. We need to put trust in Him, that He knows better than we do, the kind of Messiah that we need. We need to open ourselves to Him and ask Him to come in and rebuild us in His image, His way. He's not going to be or do what we expect. It's going to cause doubts sometimes. So, what are you doing? Why are you doing it this way? Should we expect someone else? Are you here? What's going on? As we thrash, we need to trust. It's a good thing that he's not going to be or do what we expect. See, so here's the last idea that hopefully we can all kind of take hold of today is we don't want to center Jesus around our life. We want to center our life around Jesus. There's a big difference. We don't want to center Jesus around our life. We want to center our life around Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your good word this morning. Lord, we thank you for the struggles, the doubts, the wrestling that takes place in our life because we know that you are growing our faith and our trust in you through those things. We ask you would help us to take hold of you and to trust you in the middle of all of the crazy stuff that's swirling around in our life. That we would be convinced that your hand is over all, and we can trust you through it all. Help us, Lord, to build our life around you. In Jesus' name, amen.